This is the Art of Living Well Radio Network. Radio to inspire enlightened living. You're listening now to the Honest to God series with Anne Gail Rose and Ahanu. Welcome to our show today on a lovely, very hot, I have to say, San Diego morning. It's already, I think, 99 degrees, Ahano, and it's only 10 a.m. So it's going to be a hot one today. Yes, it is. And speaking of hot, you know, we were with the uh, mechanic there this morning just to prepare the car to put it in storage because we're traveling to Ireland in the next couple of days. And at nine o'clock in the morning, the sweat was pouring off the guy, wasn't it, Angel Rosen? Poor thing. The yeah. poor thing was in sweats, and that hour of the morning was crazy. But it leads us on to talk about these conditions that we're experiencing all over the world too, because we got a report from Ireland that they're experiencing a heat wave. Now, can you believe a heat wave in Ireland, Angel Rose? What are we heading into? I know, but I think their heat wave is only about 75 degrees, isn't it, Hanu? Yeah, it is. It's not that hot, but for them, it's it's all about perception, of course. And didn't we have an interesting experience yesterday when we were speaking to a friend of ours who said that the ocean temperature off San Diego was 75 degrees, and he said if it dropped down to 68, he'd have to put on his, his wetsuit. And I had to have a great laugh at that because the water temperature in Ireland is around about 44 degrees and the people swim naked there all the time. <laughs> I know. There you go. I know. Well, what do they say, though, that, you know, when you live in a dry climate, your blood gets thinner, right? So that's probably part of the reason. Well, Ahana, we are making our way over to Ireland on Monday morning and we will be there Tuesday morning and we will be spending some months there meeting people teaching wonderful classes visiting friends and family so it'll be a wonderful wonderful time so you know me though i just have to get my feet on the ground and then i can relax i do know you angel rose and i'm glad that we did get the opportunity to spend the fourth of july here before we left for ireland because it was a great celebration, actually. We turned on the radio at one point and they were playing Yankee Doodle and all the great American songs of the old times and some, some great numbers, too. But I noticed that they were all insightful. In other words, they, they made you feel patriotic, in a sense. Yeah, didn't they? They, they kind of got you going, you know, in terms of joining in the fervor and celebrating uh, a great country. And I heard some announcer also saying that it's the only known country that has a birthday. And I found that interesting. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, well, probably because most countries' histories go back way beyond into the dark depths of the past and really nobody knows when they actually began. But uh, the United States, of course, is well documented. So I found that really, really interesting. But the amazing display of fireworks all over the place that was some show, wasn't it? It was. It was. In fact, there were three or four huge um, shows last night. One at Legoland, one at the fair, 
another one down at the harbor, uh, right by the military boats down there. And I have to say too, Ahano, uh, you know, being being a spiritually and metaphysically minded person, I find that when they do play that kind of music, I do get very emotional. And I get emotional because it brings up the subject of freedom to me and how our country has changed since the founding fathers first put down that Declaration of Independence to protect our freedoms and rights. And when we look at the nonsense that's going on today, I found myself, you know, once again in this sorrow in my heart, you know, this sadness about how distorted that freedom has become now. But when you hear the patriotic songs, you realize that you do love your country and you really do want your country to be the freedom place that it was originally intended to be, even though this nonsense has been going on for a very, very long time, not just recently, but, you know, the, the beings that undermine freedom have been around an awful long time. But you just look at the way, and it's not just our country, it's the way people are treated around the world and still treated inhumanely and without freedom. And I just, you know, it just made me sad. I came home and as you know, I was a bit melancholy. I was wondering about sorrow itself and the whole process of sorrow and grief and loss. So we, you and I decided one day we will be doing a workshop on healing that but you not being American, Hano, how did you feel listening to that? You know, I can identify with it, you see. This is the thing. I come from Ireland, which is deeply patriotic, too. And for different reasons, you know, I mean, the, the Irish had like a struggle of over 600 years, perhaps going back a thousand years, really. And independence then in 1920, well, well, the, the Easter Rising, as we call it, in 1916, and then the War of Independence in 1921, all led to the formation of the Republic of Ireland. I think it was in like 1949 or something. It took that length of time. But however, the, the fact is that you've got this deep-seated need for freedom and it leads us beautifully into our discussion today because we had last week on a gentleman by the name of Lawrence Spencer. And we discussed his book last week, Alien Interview, and that included transcripts and letters and personal notes that were provided by the late Army Air Force nurse Matilda McElroy, and it was concerning the Roswell UFO crash in 1947. And by popular demand now, we have Lawrence R. Spencer back to talk to us about his first book called The Oz Factors. And this book, he says himself, you know, kind of faded into the background a little. But Angel Rose, you were reading it and the, the deep-seated truth behind it all, from what you were telling me, because I didn't have the opportunity to actually read it myself, was that there was this desire in everybody for freedom and there was these outside forces that have an interest in denying this freedom to us. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I won't say that that's entirely what Lawrence's book is about, only because I didn't get to finish the whole thing either, and I apologize for that. But what I have read, well, first of all, I was fascinated by the fact that he takes the story of the Wizard of Oz as a symbolic representation of what's happened to our history and 
he relays it to the human condition, which is absolutely fascinating, which is why I wanted him on today. But he does go through a period, and we will discuss it, where he's talking about people needing to question sources of information. And, well, I'll save it for when we talk to him, but I find it fascinating because of the points that he makes very intelligently in relation to the story about how we could have come to be, how we arrived at where we are today. So we called him, we asked him to come back on the show to discuss it, and um, I can't wait to hear what he has to say, because it does go into our subject of freedom today. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, before we bring him on, let's just make a couple of quick announcements, Angel Rose, because you've got like a summer tour organized for Ireland this summer. And really, really, it's it's exciting. And the workshops and all that are filling up. Can you give us a little outline of what's in store for people? Well, we're just, we're teaching me how to read the Akashic Records on July 12th and 13th at Butler House in Kilkenny. We'll be teaching an advanced form of healing called Psychic Laser Therapy on August 9th. We're working with a homeopath. I believe it's the last weekend of July for three days. It'll be a workshop on going into the Akashic Records and speaking to the the beings that are homeopathic remedies themselves. So that'll be quite fascinating and interesting, I'm sure. Um, what else do we have? Is that it? A no, we've got the Psychic Surgery Certificate Workshop I going on. That, oh, yeah. you mentioned that. That's August yeah. 9th, yeah. We also have the topic-specific session on stress, strain, and worry. That's right. on July 20th, and that's one of those uh, sessions that we do on a Sunday morning. And, of course, every Sunday morning we do have the free, uh, not every Sunday, the first Sunday of every month we have the free Akashic Record reading sessions going on online and people can get information about that on worldofempowerment.com and that'll be tomorrow actually that's tomorrow yeah yeah and then we have prayer and divine intervention on august 17th we have joy and laughter on august 24th and on and on it goes all the way down into september and october and so on but if people want to get the events calendar simply go to worldofempowerment.com events and that will get them into all of what we've got planned for the summer. And just because we're going to be in Ireland, let me say that our U.S. client base won't be ignored by any means because a lot of what we do is online. And also our telephone number that most of our customers do have is an international number. It can We can be reached at 224-588-8026, and that number is local to the United States, but we will receive it no matter where we are in the in the world. So that's a useful thing to know. Now, I do want to give a little bit of background to Mr. Lawrence Spencer because we had him on last week and he, we got a lot of hits as a result of his book, The Alien Interview. And we want to continue but discuss particularly his book, The Oz Factors. He's a business consultant and multimedia producer, I believe retired now from what he mentioned last week. But his internet blog contains personal commentary, literature and poetry about life, universes and other stuff. He's the author of nine books and his books explore facts and fantasies of universes, both physical and spiritual, including Western history, art, mythology, personal spiritual immortality, logic and science fiction. 
He also has a special interest and expertise in the books of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, to whom the book Sherlock Holmes, My Life, is a tribute. And we will be going to have a pint of Guinness in the Arthur Conan Doyle pub in Dublin <laughs> when we get there. And yeah. uh, he's an accomplished oil painter also. And with all of these absolutely wonderful gifts he has, no wonder we felt very, very close last week on the radio because these are the very subjects that we are deeply interested in. And he has made a groundbreaking study of the life and paintings of the Dutch master Johan Vermeer, about which the book Vermeer, Portraits of a Lifetime, is written. But in this particular book that we're going to discuss today, in the Oz Factors, he says... Our humanity has long since been exceeded by the power of the wicked witches of science and government to destroy all life with nuclear weapons, alter our DNA and control our minds with psychotropic drugs and our lives with media lies. Our thoughts and conjectures about life and the universe are often based on assumptions, unproven theories, hearsay, rumors and misinformation. Decisions we make in life may be based on ancient attitudes and archaic practices. There are 12 common denominators that prevent observation, understanding and workable solutions to problems of, of existence. How do each of these Oz factors influence our history, science, philosophy, our lives and our future? We can choose our own yellow brick road. We can pull back the curtain of rhetoric and dogma. We can build a better emerald city for ourselves and our children. Do you really want to go back to Kansas, he says? And what a great way to bring on Mr. Lawrence Spencer. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Uh, and I'm also enjoying or experiencing the uh, you know, extreme heat. Uh, I'm in Northern California where it's already over 100 degrees. Oh, my shade. God. At yeah. 10 o'clock. <laughs> yes, but, I know. Uh, I've lived in Northern California for a long time, so I'm I'm uh, used to that sort of thing, and I actually enjoy it. Do you? Well, I think we're, yes. you know, Hanu's from Ireland, so he's used to rain and 60 degrees probably as an average and chilly nights with the turf fire. So we haven't quite acclimated to being a true Californian yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, we're moving takes, towards it, it though, because we, we find ourselves wanting to either uh, turn on the heat when it, <laughs> when it goes below like 65 degrees, you know, or, you know, turn on the air conditioning when it's uncomfortably hot. And that's, I think, a real Californian approach to life. Absolutely. Everything must be in the comfort zone. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Lawrence, I really want to talk to you about your book, The Oz Factors, because when I read Alien Interview, of course, I was on your website, and I was scouting around, and I saw this book. I immediately uh, purchased it and downloaded it and started to read it and was absolutely fascinated by the way you related the story of the Wizard of Oz to the the issue of our humanity. So... And, and that that book, you I believe you wrote before Alien Interview came out, which probably was some years ago now. So can you tell us about the Oz Factor in terms of what inspired you to write it? Yeah. Um, the Oz Factor book was the first book that I ever uh, 
wrote and published. It was published in 1997. And in fact, um, in the alien interview letters uh, that Nurse McElroy sent to me regarding the, the Roswell UFO crash pilot interview, she she alludes to having read that book. Um, the reason I contacted her to begin with is because I was researching the material for that book and inadvertently, kind of serendipitously, contacted her uh, in the line of that research and subsequently sent her a copy of that book um, about a year or so later, which she, she read. Um, and apparently, having read that book, she felt confident that uh, I might be a person to whom she could entrust the, the military transcripts, and, and which she had kept a uh, secret for 60 years. Um, uh, because of the content of the Oz Factors book, and when you read the Oz Factors book, you can you can see for yourself or not um, why she may have thought that. Anyway, I've given a lot of thought to that over the subsequent years um, as to her motivations, but it's kind of neither here nor there. It's uh, water under the bridge, so to speak. Um, the, the reason I wrote the began researching the Oz Factors book uh, together with um, the lady who was the editor of that book, Carol South, who has unfortunately passed away from breast cancer uh, many years ago. Very, very wonderful being. Um, we and a lot of other people in life on this planet are, were concerned about, um, you know, many of the, the issues that I, I think probably are universal questions for people who live on this planet. Uh, let me just read to you a, a couple of things from the book that are a very precise statement of my reasons for, for doing the research, which took many years, by the way. Um, and I was only able to do it part-time because at that time I was working as a corporate executive in marketing and uh, so forth. Um, so I wasn't able to dedicate all of my time to it, but over a period of years I was able to um, amass and evaluate considerable body of information. This is you know, really before the Internet was, and Wikipedia were um, commonplace, and the Internet wasn't um, contrived until you know, the early 1990s. Anyway, in the foreword to the Oz Factor book, I introduced my reasons for writing it by saying, the river of human history is clogged and fouled with the putrid refuse of unworkable solutions to the mysteries and problems of life. War, ruined civilizations, insanity, mental anguish, drugs, despair, murder, disease, criminality, and starvation. We are the victims of our individual and collective inability to find workable solutions to these unwanted conditions. Our sciences, religions, government, and education systems, which should be held responsible, have failed to resolve these basic questions of our existence. As proof, our humanity has long since been exceeded by our ability to destroy life with nuclear and other weapons. Meanwhile, each of us, knowingly or unknowingly, search for a spiritual way home, a way home to the resolution of the primordial mysteries of our existence. Who are we? Where did we come from? What is our purpose? Each step along the road in our search is heavily influenced by directions we have been given by those who have traveled before us. 
our ancestors, friends, teachers, leaders, scientists, philosophers, writers, and artists of the past and the present serve as guides in our journey. They help us to shape our ability to make our decisions as to which is the wisest route to travel, or whether to travel at all. Yet our trip on the road of personal truth may be slowed or quickened, straightened or perverted by those who have considered to be our friends. Have we been led astray? The story of the Wizard of Oz is used as an analogy through which the reader can more easily understand unfamiliar subjects in much the same way that chemistry, for example, can be more easily understood when compared to the familiar subject of cooking, i.e. mixing chemicals in a laboratory is similar to mixing ingredients in a kitchen. The material covered in this book provides examples of incidents which shape our viewpoint of the physical universe and which impinge upon our personal universes. The, the, the term, the Oz factors, or Oz factors, actually was not um, originated by me. It was originated by, in the course of my research, I ran across this um, this uh, lady named Jenny Randalls, uh, who was a British UFO researcher some years ago. Um, and she coined the term the Oz factors. Um, in reference, according to her definition, in reference to a peculiar, almost dreamlike state of silence that sometimes precedes UFO encounters. Jenny Randall supposed the Oz factor to be an altered state of consciousness induced by the persons behind the UFO phenomena. She conceived that this influence originated from beings of another planet capable of reaching across space to influence human behavior. She postulated that these beings are physically present in the vicinity of the affected person. Jenny Randall's described this experience, this experience as not really happening, yet it is far more than a mere hallucination. So um, she was trying to describe this, this nebulous uh, phenomena of UFO contactee experience, and uh, I was enchanted by that notion, and uh, after I had done all the research and compiled my um, uh, summary and analysis of the, the history of Western civilization and the logic that we, or the, the thought processes through which we make our decisions in our everyday lives and collectively as a civilization, um, I came to the conclusion that um, that the only thing that's valuable to us um, in the final analysis is um, anything that's able to help us to understand and or to create and use a workable solution to the problems, the questions, um, the situations of, of our existence. Uh, so the, the effort of, of this book is to try to um, expose like pulling back the curtain of the in the Wizard of Oz to expose the hidden um, shenanigans, as it were, of, of the wizard behind the curtain who's artificially orchestrating a reality for the munchkins and the inhabitants of of um, the Emerald City and so forth. That is, is not real. It's, mm -hmm. it's a construct uh, yes. based on 
the vested interest and the personal aspirations and desire for control or power or possessions or whatever it may be on the part of on the part of the wizard. Yes. Not a construct of reality. It's a construct of personal vested interest influences on those unsuspecting persons who assume that because the wizard is supposedly wise and powerful and all-knowing, that he should be listened to and followed and we should obey and comply and do what we're told. Yes. As Lawrence. A, as a kind of a logical logical construct for thinking. Yeah. And obviously, following a leader uh, has proven over and over and over in the course of our civilization to be uh, pretty much uniformly a gigantic mistake. Yes. Do you think, Lawrence, that the, the, the writer, the original writer, of the Wizard of Oz would have known some some truths and maybe wrote the the original book or the original script as a kind of a, a masquerade, as you say, a, a kind of a curtain, uh, a cloud, a veiled lesson somewhat. Do you think that there was some background knowledge that they have? Because we've also heard that, say, the, the authors of Star Trek or Avatar might have some kind of spiritual insight into what's going on, and this is a kind of a, a representation to help us understand it in a, in a way that we're, we're, we're comfortable with. Well, that's a good question. Let me, um, let me answer that by explaining how it was that I came to use um, the the film script of The Wizard of Oz as an analogy uh, in the process of, of relaying this information mm -hmm. that I researched. I, I, I did all of the research for the book. I wrote the entire book. It was edited. Everything was ready to go. And my editor and I sat down and we read it through again and we said, wow, this is about the most boring, <laughs> dry, unimaginative, um, Impal unpalatable body of information. Nobody's going to read this, and if they do, they're you know it's just not going to be intriguing. So I was, was thinking about the problem of okay, how do you how do you communicate about this subject matter or this variety of subject matters in a in a way that would be understandable and of, of general interest to the public? So what what is it at that time? This is in the mid 1990s. Um, what conveyance or what analogy or what metaphor might everyone understand in a popular so I thought well gee what is the most popular film ever produced and at that time of course and probably still to this day uh, it was The Wizard of Oz film uh, with Judy Garland uh, and of course that that film is based on uh, the books uh, about the land of Oz by L. Frank Baum uh, who was a a failed business person, lived in the Midwest, he owned a chicken farm, and he about starved to death, and he did so many different things to try to earn a living for himself and his family. And, um, because he had children, he was, he was um, and this was back in the 20s and 30s, I think, was told stories to his children um, to amuse them or, you know, to keep them entertained and so forth because they didn't have television and radio and all that sort of thing. And he was also a bit of a, as I understand, a bit of a, a thespian a performer, and he enjoyed all that kind of thing very much. So he he made up these these stories as children's stories uh, for his kids, and obviously they're they're extremely metaphorical and insightful um, and spiritual in many ways. Um, however, the film script 
um, that was finally used uh, in the, the finished edited version of the film many, many years later. The film was uh, released in 1936, the same year as the film Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind won the Academy Award that year for Best Picture. Wizard of Oz uh, was uh, kind of a runner-up to it. Um, even though it was, these were the first two films ever in the history of film that were filmed in Technicolor. You know, colored films. Amazing. But what I discovered when I, when I started studying the L. Frank Baum, the Elf Frank Baum books, uh, about Oz, compared to the film script of, of the, uh, the story of the Wizard of Oz, is that the film script version is actually a collaboration of many, many, many different people. The script was changed over and over and over, and the, the film had experienced a tremendous amount of difficulty in filming and turmoil and starts and stops, and they changed directors seven or eight times, and every director demanded a rewrite and his own personal input. And so it was actually kind of a, a real hodgepodge and conglomeration of... of uh, of uh, disputational ideas and thoughts and creative processes and so forth. But nonetheless, it resulted in this really magnificent script. So I sat down and I, I read the script all the way through, just as itself. And then I, and then I um, somewhere, I don't know where, I got a recorded audio version. Oh, I know what it was. I recorded the audio version of the, of the film and I just listened to just the audio of the film without watching the film and discovered that the this particular script, uh, the metaphors, the analogies, the comparisons, the, the logical um, and spiritual and philosophical content uh, buried in, in the film script was really perfectly suited to the material um, that I had accumulated uh, for this book. So... Mm -hmm. I went through and I interjected uh, quotations from the film in the various sections of, of the book where I felt that they were appropriate uh, by means of analogy or explanation yes. um, to the material in the book. And uh, it proved to be uh, amazingly effective, I thought. Um, and it actually helped me to understand the material that I wrote. <laughs> and right, yes, yes. I actually had a great benefit from from comparing all this material to to the film script of, of the Wizard of Oz, and mm -hmm. discovered that in fact the film I think has been so immensely popular is because it does because it does contain and convey this 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 tremendous wisdom and insight under the under the surface. Even though I don't think it was knowingly created by the people the you know the people who uh, work together, collaboration, and against each other over all those years of, during right. the production of that film to produce this particular script. Right. Anyway, it's it's kind of that that whole thing is kind of an anomaly. Uh, it's a little inexplicable. Almost, it has kind of a, a resonance of a, of the Oz factor that Jenny Randall's describes. You know, you feel as though you're being influenced from yes. an outside source, but you don't really know what it is or if it's there or not. But it, it's almost undeniable that there's some extraterrestrial or spiritual or godlike influence, not unlike uh, Glinda, the wicked witch, of, the, the good witch of the West, in the film, who who is the true source of guardianship 
for the munchkins and the true source of power and uh, spiritual energy and so forth that that pervades the land of Oz. And the wizard is just just kind of a, a buffoon, you know. He's he's really just a joker and a carnival huckster uh, in reality, and he doesn't know what he's doing, and he's just you know he's a mess. Uh, although he does have his endearing qualities and his his bits of uh, technical innovation and so forth. The real the real guidance, the real civilization is brought to Munchkin land by and and the real evil, destructive factors are, are all controlled by these spiritual factors, the, the witches. Um, um so anyway, overall I think I think the the material in the book in the context of understanding provided by the film script actually worked out very well. And I very much enjoyed that whole experience because it really did give me a, a good deal of clarity right. uh, so, on a lot of the subject matter in the book that I didn't have myself. Give us an example, Lawrence, of how the script fits in and ex helps explain what you were discovering about life in general. Uh, well, let me see. Um, I have a copy of the book in front of me. Well, one one example um, in the study of logic um, in general, in Western logic particularly, there's a phenomenon where um, in the film um, Dorothy is swept up by a tornado from Kansas, and she's somehow magically transported by this this um, tornado um, across and out of the physical universe of Kansas, the black and white landscape of Kansas, um, in a bleak and barren and destitute, this is during the 1930s, during the height of the Depression, um, and transported into this magical, technicolor, vivacious landscape of uh, this mystical, magical uh, land of Oz that, that no one could possibly imagine existed, and it's inhabited by wizards and witches and uh, fairies and munchkins and all of these things. It's very, very bizarre and strange. It's, you know, it's like an alternate re reality or a different universe uh, or what have you. So when she she, she comes down to the, the farmhouse that she's in, crashes and kills the wicked witch of the east, and the munchkins are all elated by this. because Oh my God, this evil force in our lives have been uh, eliminated. Therefore, Dorothy must be some sort of a messiah or savior or goddess or something. You know? And because look at she landed, she crashed her house on top of our arch enemy. So um, Glinda, the, the, the good witch of the West, she she emerges and she says, "Oh my goodness, um, Dor this is Dorothy." Introduces herself and she says, "Dorothy, you you fell from a star. Obviously, you fell because you know she came out of the sky. So logically." Uh, in the mind of the Munchkins and Glinda, the good witch, if you come from the sky, obviously you must be from the stars because the stars are in the sky. So you have this very, very loose kind of associative logic where you equate sky with stars and stars with power and uh, killing killing the enemies with, uh, you know, supernatural ability. And, you know, so you get this ball of wax of... of Utterly illogical, un, un, unfactual information, and they arrive at the conclusion that oh my God, Dorothy is some kind of a, 
a goddess or angel or something because she's she's killed the wicked witch and she came from the stars. Yes. So, I, in the book, I use that as an example of how you know, there there are unlimited numbers of examples in science and religion and philosophy and so forth and politics and every every aspect of human life where people use that same kind of logic where they say. Um, uh, apple equals orange equals banana equals gorilla equals umbrella. You know, they're, they're completely disassociative, disassociated factors that are equated with each other, not because they really have anything to do with each other or they're factual or anything. It's only because of this bizarre logic that we, yes, or what yes. we call logic in Western civilization that equates yes. utterly disrelated factors um, that have not been investigated or proven to be factual or or anything else, uh, and accepted conclusively as evidence or proof that um, uh, something is the way it is, or yeah. that we should believe it. Premise it, of our thinking. Yeah, we found that in our own experience too, with dealing with clients when they may have had either an alien encounter or some kind of a spiritual experience, where they make a huge assumption that whatever it is is more powerful than them there there seems to be this belief that anything that's you know outside of ourselves in that sense is more powerful and in indeed that's a, a dangerous assumption to make because it's been our experience that a lot of these things actually don't have anywhere near the power that we have and what you're saying yeah. is absolutely true we we tend to make these wild assumptions out of out of not knowing so that's an absolutely yeah, wonderful the, uh, analogy the book, there. I actually give the, <clears throat> the example using that analogy, um, saying because because of the Munchkin's logic, they their logic is sky equals very far equals star equals Kansas. Uh, this kind of reasoning process could be called everything logic. Everything equals everything. This sort of logic might also be the definition of stupidity. Example, if Kansas equals sky equals star, one could theoretically gaze up into the firmament and watch Kansas cattle grazing in the twinkling prairies in the stars above. Unfortunately, much of what we call science on planet Earth is based on everything logic. So how many scientific, so-called scientific theories can we cite, uh, and I cite some in the, in the book, that are based on that kind of completely non-sequitur, unproven, presumptuous um, logic. Uh, and yet, this is the, the kind of the ordinary, everyday thought process that um, human beings seem to, to follow. You know, one person says, oh, I saw a UFO. And another person says, oh, I saw a UFO. And so, first thing you know, everybody in the crowd is going, oh my God, UFOs are real. We're being invaded. And so forth, and this actually happened in uh, many, many, many times. And the most notorious example of that kind of contagion of hysterical, unproven mania was with the uh, Orson Welles uh, radio broadcast back in the day, with the, yes. the, the invasion of, uh, of uh, Martians to Earth, and people all over nice. the country and all over the world, in fact, actually went went crazy because they assumed that because they heard it on radio 
Yes. That it must be true. That's exactly the And term, that's yeah. the only logical assumption they had to go on. There's no evidence, no proof. You look out the window, there's nothing happening, everything is normal and calm. And yet, because you hear this radio show, you go, oh my God, it must be true, we're being invaded, we're all going to die. That's right. And I we mean, get the same thing, that's, too, that's from religions. That's the kind religions. of that we call science on this yeah. planet. We get the same thing from, yes. from religions. You know, if, if, if it's... The Pope says it, then it must be true. Or if Allah said it, then it must be true. Yeah. Or if it's if it's on the internet, it must be true. I mean, we, we've got our yeah, granddaughter. If it's, it's, if it's on Facebook, it must be true. I know it's absolute yeah, crazy, precisely. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. People watch television and they go, "Well, I saw it on the five o'clock news." It has to be true. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, if you really do the research, you find out that every single thing you see on every news broadcast around the world is artificially contrived. In a studio, it's written by a script, by a, by a writer who is told what to write by the people who represent the financial interests of the sponsors and the banks and the money providers and the politicians and so forth. And it's all false reality, every single bit of it, except maybe for the weather. Yeah. <laughs> I, hoping, you know? Yeah, I have a question, Lawrence. I want to back up a little bit with this conversation where we started in the beginning talking about groups of people who are creating an illusion of reality that we all have believed in. <clears throat> Could you talk to us a little bit about that illusory reality as you see it, and what what kind of false reality are they creating that we've bought into? And just before you answer that, Lawrence, we, we do need to take a very, very quick little studio break. So hold your thought there and answer that as soon as we come back after this. This is the Art of Living Well Radio Network. Radio to inspire enlightened living. You're listening now to the Honest to God series with Ann Gail Rose and Ahanu. All right, we're back now. Thank you very much for that, Ahanu. And we are with Lawrence Spencer talking about his book, The Oz Factors. So, Lawrence, just before the break, I was asking you if you could explain to our listeners what the illusory reality is that has been created for us, as opposed to if you do have any sort of idea about what a true reality would be instead. Could you Explain what's happened there and what your thoughts are about it. Okay, uh, let me let me um, rather than describing my own personal opinion about that and recent uh, discoveries, I'll, I'll refer to the, the material in the book. Um, one one example that occurred to me uh, that I give in the book is the example of the the Greek um, warrior conqueror Alexander the Great. Um, he was educated by Aristotle uh, in a private school with him by himself and just a few other students in what was later called came to be known as the Walking Academy. They walked around through the gardens of his father, Prince Philip, and Aristotle would um, verbally instruct uh, these young men in various subjects of his um, expertise and interest and opinion and so forth. And Aristotle had a, a certain kind of a logic um, that he was famous for having developed, which was based on a kind of a black and white point of view of the world. It's either positive or negative, or it's good or it's bad, or it's black, it's white, blah, 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 blah. It's very, very simple, straightforward. 
So, um, and very, very authoritarian, because uh, in the Greek history of the Greeks and most of Western civilization, um, the the construct of the civilization is based on a, uh, you know, men run the civilization. Men own everything, including the women, uh, the property, the livestock, each other, so on and so forth. And power is the basis of, of wealth, and might is right, and all of that sort of overly simplified kind of um, uh, worldview of men and all of their testosterone-driven macho-hood. Um, so Aristotle was a, was a uh, he was an, an ardent and excellent student of that of that logic and philosophy. However, Aristotle also perceived, as did the Greeks, that there were a panoply of spiritual influences. Uh, the Greek gods um, were predominantly influential, as were the, the oracles of the various gods, like the, like the famous oracle of Delphi, the, which is the oracle of the voice of Apollo, uh, for example. So when, er when um, Alexander uh, set out to conquer the world, he felt that he himself was worthy of worship. He was a god. He was godlike because, uh, as witness his conquest and his power and his ability to command men and conquer civilizations and slaughter thousands and thousands of men in a day and so on and so forth. But he himself didn't feel that he could proclaim his godlike authority without consulting a spiritual source of affirmation. So when they are he and his army arrived in uh, the deserts of uh, Egypt on their way to um, the capital of Egypt. Uh, they stopped at a uh, uh, out in the middle of the desert where there was a uh, I'm not sure what you call it exactly a home of some sages and soothsayers and so forth, uh, an oracle temple. Um, so he went and he, he consulted the oracle and he paid the oracle to tell him what he wanted to hear, which is that, yes, indeed, Alexander, you are a god. So he emerges from his uh, consultation with the oracle and announces to his troops, yes, the oracle has confirmed that I am a god, and hereafter you will you will address me as, as the god that I am, so on and so forth. Well, his soldiers didn't necessarily buy that. Most of them did, but his generals didn't buy it. But nonetheless, they all trooped off and went about their business of conquering the rest of the known world. Solely on the authority, or the hearsay, or the say-so, of an unseen, unverified, um, completely spiritual, ethereal, verbal opinion expressed by Alexander, uh, that he himself was a god, and he is a god because this oracle says so. Well, who is the oracle? The oracle is just this, you know, these broken down old men sitting out in the middle of the desert in a in a hut, basically, um, you know, meditating all day and espousing all of the spiritual power and insight and so forth. Um, so Alexander uses this this kind of mystical, spiritual, unseen otherworldly, uh, whatever you want to call it, influence to manipulate his power and control and possession of the world as it was known then. And that same phenomena, the, that same basis of authority, you know, the self-appointed godlike rulers of the planet, the 
Queen of England, for the uh, the various emperors of various countries and various times and places, religious leaders and so forth are are self-appointed authorities, leaders, godlike beings who, by by quote divine right unquote, uh, are authorized to tell you what to think, how to think, where to live, when to live. Uh, what to eat, what not to eat, so on and so forth in your civilization. But principally, they're, they're exhibiting and manifesting their own desire to control you and everything in the world uh, to a greater or lesser degree, according to whatever their vested interest is. And uh, the word vested interest is a common uh, expression which says exactly what we're talking about here. A vested interest is, is a personal interest that forwards your personal survival and your personal goals or aspirations, whatever those may be. Um, in the case of Alexander, obviously it was to conquer the entire known world at that time and be a living God, uh, while be, at the same time being a man of flesh and blood. Um, and I, I'm hard-pressed to really find any any difference or any change or any... Uh, in all of the phenomena of, of civilizations of Earth throughout its entire history. I've studied all the history of, of Earth as far as uh, it's available, and I can't really see any exceptions to that kind of underlying phenomena of uh, vested interest yeah. being the principal guideline used by self-appointed authorities to, to mold the, the, the civilizing processes yes. and the minds and the thoughts and of every other being on the planet. So your your conclusions Something changes. Your conclusions then when you when you had the book written, the Oz factors. Did did you feel that it changed your your whole idea of civilization and humanity and even a spiritual aspiration? Did it change anything for you or was it like a was it like hitting a brick wall of realization or what was the effect after you had come to these realizations? Well, um, it, it's not an instantaneous effect. It's an evolutionary process of my own uh, right. observation and thinking and uh, so forth, which I, it continues to this day. I mean, if, if you're if you're searching for for truth, your own truth, or for understandings and explanations and uh, solutions, workable solutions to the problems of existence, whether spiritual or physical, I. I I don't see how it could be anything other than a continuing eternal um, process um, because, in my, at least for myself and my personal experience, there are no uh, finite answers or solutions to the problems of existence um, except to the degree that they're satisfactory to you. They work for you. They solve your problems. They answer your questions. And it's a very, very personal, subjective situation, in my opinion. Uh, everyone has to do their own, you know, find their own yellow brick road and choose which directions to take and consult with the wicked witches or wizards or not, or ignore them, which would be my recommendation. Uh, avoid the self-appointed authorities and their particular vested interests, which will lead you down their path to what they want you to think and where they want you to do and the taxes they want you to pay to them and so on and so forth uh, to forward their survival interest 
and and discover your own path, discover your own wisdoms, and point, you know, kind of appoint yourself as your own god, your own authority, your own basis of power, which I, I believe personally I, that we are. I think each one of us individually as a spiritual entity is in fact a source of our own existence and our own perception. Um, that was probably the fundamental conclusion that I came to in at the time of having written that book and uh, Lawrence, Lawrence, because, can, because my yeah can I interrupt you there and ask you to delve on that just a little bit more when you say each one of us you find is the source of our own existence can you can you give us the implications of that because that is an incredibly profound statement so could you elaborate on that just a little well um that that idea, that concept, isn't really covered in the Oz Factors book per se. It's, uh, at that time, I wasn't my by thinking about it wasn't crystallized nearly to the degree that it has become since, or expanded upon. But uh, in the Oz Factors, there are a number of examples uh, in the context of the book which describe this 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 phenomena, this kind of this personal. Uh, experience like Dorothy has in the movie, The Wizard of Oz, where at the end of the, end of the film, she's spent her whole time, you know, trying to get out of the land of Oz and away from the wicked witches and the flying monkeys and so forth and get back to Kansas where everything is calm and orderly and safe and where there are people that know her and love her and so forth. And she comes, she, Linda, the, the, the good witch of the West, helps her come to the realization that she, alone, by herself, has the power to manifest or create any anything for herself that she wants to, any location, any thought, any desire. And all she has to do is wish it to be so and click her, click her, her ruby slipper, the heels of her ruby slippers together while thinking uh, that she wants to be home. And magically, she's, she's home, just like that. So she, she makes the decision, she decides to be home, and she's home. And all of the wizards and witches and technologies in any universe were not able to accomplish that fact for her. Only her decision to be home was what took her home. Um, so for me, that's kind of a, in a metaphorical example of, you know, and there are millions of such metaphors, in, <coughs> of, of that idea. It's like, you know, and quantum physicists have been studying the phenomena of of uh, thought manifestation, and many, many, many books have been written by uh, lots of different people over the years, and by the Indian gurus and so forth, that um, about the law of attraction and about the the manifestation of thought as uh, the source of universes, or the source of energy, the source of physical matter, the source of changing realities and perceptions and so forth. Lots of wonderful books have been written about that. And I, I think that phenomenon has been understood in India and other places for many, many thousands of years. But in the Western world, and certainly in science, in particular in Western science, that that knowledge and wisdom and so forth is forbidden. It's excluded. It's, uh, you know, if you can't measure it with a set of calipers and a thermometer, it doesn't exist. But in spite of the fact that there's evidence and proof and uh, phenomena all around you, 
of spiritual influences on the behavior and um, you know perception of not only human beings but all life forms. Um, and yet, in Western science, those phenomena are excluded and ignored uh, purposefully because it can't be measured in a test tube in a laboratory. So that, which is another ex example in itself of crazy, insane, uh, everything logic. I mean, how can you exclude 99% of the evidence and come to a conclusion um, that certain phenomena are true or false based on the fact that you can measure it in a test tube or in a laboratory? And because you can't measure subjective perception or thoughts or ideas or opinions in a laboratory, that means that they're invalid and and of, of no use. And that's one of the principal reasons why we have so many unworkable solutions to the problems of, of, of survival and mm -hmm. well-being and so forth on this planet is because mm -hmm. the, the so-called logic of our civilization demands physical universe proof and evidence in a measurable sense of everything. Otherwise, it's excluded as evidence and it doesn't, is not allowed to be made part of the equation of our solving our problems. Right. Here's a question, Lawrence. You know how it's generally accepted now, Any for anybody in the metaphysical world or anybody who's clued into any kind of uh, spiritual a spiritual nature, they're aware of some kind of a general spiritual awakening around the world, a kind of a growth of awareness, let's call it. And because of what you're saying in terms of it all being an illusion or it being an agenda of some sort or it being somebody's power and control effort or somebody's vested interest, do you think that that growth of awareness could also be an illusion? Well, personally, absolutely. I mean, I certainly personally think that. Um, however, I think for me, the bottom line is is a, a much greater overriding factor, which is that each individual being for themselves must perceive, think, decide, contrive, explore uh, what they consider to be workable for them uh, and create or postulate or conceive their own reality, their own universe, their own perceptions based on their own vested interests, their own desires, their wishes, their dreams, dreams, you know, and kind of click their goals, their, their, the heels of their slippers together themselves, by themselves, without any guidance or direction from any angels or outside sources, and just have the courage and persistence to uh, consider themselves to be godlike. They are, you know, each individual person is the wizard. You are the, the, the magic fairy. You are the, the good witch and the evil witch and the embodiment of all of these things is, is you. And, you know, at the end of the Oz Factors book, uh, the, the, the concluding thought is that, you know, as so many other philosophers have said through the ages, you are the power. You are the source of, you are the source of everything that you think, conceive, perceive, so on and so forth. And, uh, I don't, for personally, I, I don't see in any way, shape, or form how that can be 
disputed if if you're really really honest with yourself and willing to be responsible for uh, your own circumstances and ability. So, you know, I, I think it's up to each. And, and the reason, one of the reasons I wrote the book is because um, in my own life experience, I see it's so frustrating to to see people herded around like sheep everywhere. You know, whether it's in the corporate environment or in political or religious sense or social activities or whatever it is. Um, I, I really, really resent the idea that that I have to I have to obey and behave in a certain in a certain way because in order to be socially acceptable or to be liked, admired, uh, to to pick up a paycheck, whatever it is, I, I personally just really find that objectionable, objectionable, and just hard to live with um, for whatever reason. <laughs> That's yeah. just me. We totally concur with that idea, and I'd like to ask you um, two things now, Lawrence. Even though I, you know, I myself am aware of a lot of the teachings of old masters who talk about the law of attraction that thought is creative, but I still see, you know, as many people that may know that, I still am curious as to why we're we all are still creating this sort of reality for us now, which looks like it's further enslavement, uh, really to the point of in, uh, total evil and insanity, much worse than I've ever seen. Okay, and I'd also, you do discuss two things in the Oz Factor. You discuss time, and I would like you to let our listeners know what the ideas of time are and how it gets created. And you also... Uh, in terms of this problem of us taking back our power, you do talk about uh, Adolf Hitler in the book and also how his beliefs really came from a bunch of psychiatrists who had their own agenda. And I would like you to discuss that only because I'd like to get the point home to people just how expansive or extensive this mind control stuff has been and when we come back around to us taking our own power i love the way in your book that you make you define words and i've done that for years as well and i find that is so illuminating to start questioning the meanings of words so i know i'm putting a lot out there to you right now but could you kind of pull all that together for our listeners sure no problem (laughs) (laughs) um okay well, let me let me talk about <clears throat> in the book it discusses the the issue of time and the issue of the various definitions of time have existed in you know and you can look it up in the I like uh, when looking up words in a dictionary I always like to refer to the uh, Oxford English dictionary myself because uh, it's it offers by far the most um, definitive and uh, the widest variety of definitions of words in the English language, and also the, the derivations. You know, where did the word come from originally? Uh, in the, you know, in the midst, midst of our civilization, how did those words develop, and how were they altered, uh, or changed from the original uh, Greek or Latin term, or whatever the origin was? Um, so, just you know, that's my own preference. I find modern Modern uh, encyclopedias, especially encyclopedias that you find on the internet to use, are almost devoid of 
the real, um, of the actual definition of the word. I mean, it's only a modern usage uh, definition as opposed to the uh, the definition of, of the where did the word come from and what did it mean originally before yes. it was altered mm-hmm. by various vested interests. And, and that is a factor for sure in molding the perception and opinions of civilization, which is used, known and used very, very aggressively, in my understanding, by various um, people who control our um, the events of our lives and our, particularly the money supply and the political power, military power, uh, control mechanisms uh, surrounding civilization. Um, they they're very well aware that uh, people's thoughts are formulated in in terms of uh, symbols we call words or language, and that by modifying definitions. Um, you can you can change people's minds or opinion. Uh, probably the most forthright example of that is expressed in George Orwell's book, 1984, uh, where he you know talks about Big Brother uh, having uh, you know uh, a fleet you know uh, guys who would go back and they would rewrite the news after the news had become history. They would go back and and rewrite the news after it had already happened. And then republish it and erase the the original news event and replace it with a modified news event. And they're still um, doing that now. Modified history. Yeah, and that that happens. That's that's reality. Um, that's that's the, the spoken agenda, and outright outright spoken um, a purpose of the CIA is expressed in 1988 by the director of the CIA at that time was to for. I think the, his exact words were, when everything that the American people believe is completely false, we will have accomplished our purpose. Oh, and there, are, there are several really excellent books written about <clears throat> the, the, the factuality of it, but it's not too difficult to observe it. Um, one of the reasons that that um, vested interest and wicked witches and wizards and so forth are able to, you know, and the the, the Rothschild bankers and the Rockefellers and the Agenda 21 and, uh, you know, uh, politicians and religious interests and so forth are able to manipulate civilizations and minds and thoughts and societies because they remain, their activities are hidden. They're very, very secret. And if there's anything that, uh, that um, the, the powers that be, the best and interest that be on this planet have in common, it's secrecy. And this is their greatest weapon. Um, I've learned, I learned, you know, from reading the the, the uh, interview transcripts from the Ellen interview book, for example. Uh, the pilot describes very specifically how that how that works and how secrecy is is the key ingredient to their being able to maintain the, the power and authority. And in fact, that idea could be extended to, you know, the Jenny Randall's definition of the word us factors. She was trying to put her finger on this phenomena that she perceived of, you know, spiritual, unseen spiritual, uh, or extraterrestrial influence on the minds and activities of humanity. You can't put your fingers on. So she called it the, the us factors. She couldn't, she didn't have a word to express this hidden, secret, unseen phenomena, but she could feel it. She could see it happening. She could feel it. And I think um, collectively and individually, many, many, many more people like yourselves and, and so many other people 
have are becoming increasingly aware of this phenomenon. They're, they they may not know where it's coming from or who's doing it or why, but they can feel it. And more and more people are giving names to it. They're they're pointing the fingers. They're identifying who are the wizards behind the curtains and are manipulating the machinery of civilization and warfare and uh, you know printing the, the phony money that, that we use, uh, what we call currency, you know the fiat currency system. And, so on and so forth, that are all contrivances of a tiny, tiny handful of secret society beings on this planet or off planet or wherever um, to create an illusory, delusional perception of that a certain reality exists because mm-hmm. they say it exists and because yes. they can reinforce it with the bayonet or they can, you know, they can put you out of business, put you in prison, starve you to death, or whatever. If you don't believe, if you don't become a believer, then you're excommunicated, you're burned at the stake, you're thrown in a prison, blah, blah, blah. Yes, uh, yes, yes. Uh, and it's the same old, same old, same old. Now, what about the place for entertainment as entertainment? Do you know, let, let's say somebody goes to see The Wizard of Oz or indeed any kind of big movie, Hollywood blockbuster type of movie. Now, we would know that it would have allusions and metaphors and be full of analogy and so on. But in terms of just the bare-bones entertainment value, is there a place for that in this wakening up process that you're talking about? Um, well, uh, personally, I think there, there, there may be, provided that the person viewing the film or whatever it is um, has an understanding that, that what's being pervaded to them on the screen or on television or whatever is an artificially contrived uh, illusion. Uh, I recently had um, an experience myself. Uh, the book that um, we discussed last week, um, the, the Alien Interview book, yes. uh, which is not a book that I wrote, as, as you know, um, is, has been an option to have a, a Hollywood film, or an independent film, right. made about it based on that book. So one of the producers of that film, um, she and her husband work at CBS Studios, and they produce television shows. So mm-hmm. I went down to visit with them a few weeks ago, and these are lovely, wonderful, spiritual people. She's a lifelong channeler and uh, very, very wonderful, insightful spiritual people, but they work at CBS Studios. So I went down for a couple of days, and I, uh, she gave me a tour of uh, CBS Studios on the inside, and we went to some of the, the, the sound stages and sets and so forth where various programs were being filmed and so forth, and I got to see the behind-the-scenes uh, workings of, you know, the, the whole creative process, the editing, the, the you know, the, the acting, the directing, the production, so forth, uh, on a first-hand basis. Uh, during the actual production of, of several of these shows. And I'm telling you that my opinion of television has forever changed. I cannot watch television anymore. What happened? Not Explain. That I, not that I'm a big fan of television. The reason I can't watch it anymore is because I know that it's utterly 100% a contrivance. It's artificial. Right, yes. made up. It's written by writers who are paid for, bought and paid for, whose ideas are bought and paid for by the commercial interests who benefit financially uh, or politically or in whatever fashion to support their vested interest in the content of all of this program that you see on television and so forth and films is uh, contrived specifically and only for the purposes 
uh, and designed by the vested interests who own and control and uh, pay the creative people. Yes. And, uh, so you can't really, really take it seriously, at least not for me. Not have, not actually after having been there and seen it in pro, in production, I can't take it seriously anymore. I know I've seen I've seen the wizard behind the screen, and I've seen all the machinery he's manipulating, and it's all it's all just an artificial contrivance, and it has an agenda. Uh, okay. And it's well, those agendas are controlled by the vested interests. Yeah, Lawrence, let's let's switch over because this kind of relates. Since Ahanu brought up the subject of uh, entertainment, you know, you talk in your book about our need to play games, and you describe survival versus non-survival games. Can you go into that as something that humanity is obviously hooked on? Can you? Explain what you mean by that to our listeners. Well, yeah, there's a survival versus non-survival game is just what it says. Um, survival, the definition of survival being not only your individual survival or the survival of your particular uh, family, group, organization, nation, what have you, but the survival of all sentient beings collectively as a combined uh, individual and combined uh, spiritual organism, so to speak. Um, to the degree that each of us survive individually, um, all of us have to survive collectively and interactively. Otherwise, the individual does not survive, whether in the context of the physical body or the planet, the ecosystem of the planet, um, the, the future existence of the physical universe or whatever it may be. Um, survival games would be a game that, that promotes and forwards the, the interest of, of the greater number of, of not just a particular country, for example. Just because you're a member of the biggest popular, biggest country on the world doesn't justify your slaughtering, um, the inhabitants of neighboring countries because you covet their land or their wives or their gold or whatever it is. Uh, any more than an alien civilization would be wise to conquer and destroy uh, all of the, the beings and the resources of, of, a, of a planet for to promote their, their own civilization. Uh, in the long run, it just doesn't work out. So the, the, the non-survival games uh, that we experience, like, like war and uh, you know the Federal Reserve Bank and politics, what we laughingly call politics in this day and age, uh, you know, all of these these interests that are driven by private, personal, secret vested interests are, are games, not survival games, because they're based on survival of a very, very tiny percentage of elite, wealthy, powerful um, individuals who uh, have absolutely no awareness or care for anyone including themselves, not aware that even they themselves are a spiritual entity, uh, much less anyone else. So their 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 oblivion, their personal personal spiritual and intellectual oblivion, is the basis of their uh, perpetually destructive authoritarian. You know, like Alexander the Great, he conquered the world, and then he died in you know, a drunken fit of hysteria, uh, hated by everyone universally. So 
So what, what, what did he actually gain there? In fact, he was not a god. In fact, he was, he was just a crazy, insane, power-hungry lunatic. And he died at the age of 32, having, having, uh, you know, massacred millions of people around in, in the wake of his conquest. And his only legacy are a bunch of ancient cities around the planet that bear his name, Alexandria, uh, to this day. So, so what? Having your name on a plaque or a monument or a statue or a city or whatever, um, what does that mean in terms of actual survival, happiness, uh, you know, the, the potential um, perpetuity of a civilization, the ability to be sustainable and have joy and wonderful experience and pleasure and all of these things which are you know we consider to be survival if it doesn't if it doesn't enhance or encourage or persuade or manifest as pleasurable for the you know the greatest good of the greatest i hate to use the you know this idea of the greatest good for the greatest number that doesn't that doesn't always work often the majority is crazy and insane as is demonstrated on a daily basis by the democratic process. Just because you're one of the majority in the voting uh, in, in an election doesn't mean that your that your solution or your your um, ideas are are survival. They could yeah. be extraordinarily destructive, and most usually are. So my idea of the contrast between survival yes. and non-survival games. Right. Well, you mentioned about Alexander the Great, and it has been our experience. That when we when we did a session, an Akashic Record session, fairly recently about the famous deceased. Now we didn't ask specifically about what Alexander the Great was doing, but we did ask about other famous people, and what we found was that us keeping them in our memories, in the collective memory, tended to keep them earthbound. Now, therefore, somebody who has this desire for power and control and who goes into the annals of history, like Alexander the Great, for example, that may be something that they want to keep them in power and control at this level of consciousness, at this level of spiritual growth. So it may not always be a good thing or a wise thing, depending, of course, on your own aspirations. But here's what I want to do, Lawrence. Let's remind our listeners that we're speaking with Lawrence Spencer about his book, The Oz Factors, and was published in 1997 and I want to do a very very quick little summary and we want to stay on the line there with you because we want you to give us a little summary of what you've learnt from all of the books that you've written and your experience with dealing with all of these kinds of things in the last long number of years but you spoke about how the Oz factors came to be written and you spoke about Jenny Randall's definition of the Oz factors, which was like dreamlike, a dreamlike state of silence, sometimes preceding a UFO encounter. And you talked about the analogy of the film script, The Wizard of Oz, which was written in 1936 uh, and was released at the same time as Gone with the Wind, and how the mystical and magical land of Oz is a, a metaphor. And then you did give us a fantastic analysis of stupidity and logic and how our conscious decisions are made. And you spoke about the story of Alexander the Great and the power of divine right 
and that vested interest that people in politics and government and power and control and religions tend to believe that they have. And you spoke about the place for entertainment in our lives, our eternal search for truth, the insanity of logic, realizing that you are the source of everything. And then you talked in great detail very eloquently about the importance of the definition of words and their origins and how the weapon of secrecy works to maintain authority and how the very survival of individuals and the collective is is a game so in order to bring us to a conclusion here Lawrence could you just tell us about all of the books that you've written and maybe particularly Oz Factors what it was that you feel you're bringing to the world, what, what the world has to gain from reading those books and that book in particular? Okay. Um, my, for me personally, uh, I've had a kind of a lifelong aggravation and frustration with what I could consider to be the lack of satisfying information or answers or uh, to kind of my own primordial questions, as it were, which I, I think are the same questions that many, many people have, which is, you know, where do we come from? Who am I really? Um, what am I doing here? What's my purpose? Or is there a purpose? Uh, you know, all of these these kind of uh, existential questions, if you will, that people ask themselves in perpetuity and never seem to find universally or collectively an agreed-upon answer or solution to, you know, the resolution of those inexplicable um, frustrations and, and inconclusive questions that we have. So, you know, I started, uh, the reason I, I wrote this book and, and really ultimately all the books that I've written are kind of my own personal journey in trying to resolve those, those um, questions for myself and find something that I, I consider to be um, a worthwhile answer because all of the sources of uh, answers that I've investigated, whether it's be uh, you know, religion, philosophy, history, politics, whatever it may be, science certainly, when you, when you go out looking for answers, um, in my experience, the answers are are highly inconclusive. They're they're crazy. They're they're illogical. They're conflicting, they're not based on anything other than somebody's opinion, ultimately, with very, very few, few exceptions. So I eventually have come to the conclusion um, that my opinion is really the only opinion that I can rely on. And as a, as a spiritual being, I personally have the conviction that, that we live forever and will continue to live forever, and that in that process I, I have to be uh, I have to be my only sole most reliable friend and companion throughout all of eternity because mm -hmm. I'm not sure that I can turn to somebody and say, gee, what, what should I think about this or what's the answer, answer to mm -hmm. this or question or that. I have to ask myself and I have to find my own, have to find my own answer. Right. Um, so to that degree, I think, uh, like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, you know, we have to each, um, decide what it is that we want to be, who we want to be, where we want to be, and so forth, and click our own heels together and be responsible for the, the fate of our own decision, uh, just as she was in the film. So if and you want to be in Kansas, just be in Kansas. That's absolutely fan not. 
Fantastic. And could you just give out your contact details, Lawrence? Yeah, my uh, my personal blog is www.lawrencerspencer.com, and uh, you can all of my books on there. All of my books are uh, in print form, electronic form, and uh, have been produced as audio books, so you can listen to them either from iTunes or Audible.com, Amazon, so on and so forth. Um, I appreciate very much your having me on your show again. It's you're delightful beings, obviously highly intelligent and uh, uh, perceptive, and I very much appreciate your uh, having me as your guest and, and, and becoming acquainted with you, and I look forward to knowing you uh, better in the future. Yes, likewise, and just as I'm sitting here listening to you today, of course, my mind's reeling with about a thousand other questions, so I'm sure this will not be the last time we have you on. Yes. I'd be delighted to visit with you anytime, and I wish you the very, very best of um, luck with your visit to Ireland this summer. I wish I could go with you. It sounds delightful. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you, Lawrence. We do have to leave it there, unfortunately, and we will put your contact details and your books and so on on our website as well, so as to help you out with the promotion of that as best we can. Okay, you've been listening to... Myself, Ahanu, and Angel Rose on the Honest to God series radio show. Remember that our free group, Akashic Records, is online tomorrow morning and every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific time. More information at worldofempowerment.com. And remember, next week it could be you. If you'd like to come on the show and discuss your passion or your spiritual business, if you have a book launch or anything like that, do contact us at worldofempowerment.com. So until next Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific time, we send you our love, our blessings, and thank you for listening to Ahanu and Angel Rose on the Honest to God series. And as we say in Ireland, Slán agus Bannock de Liv This is the Art of Living Well Radio Network. Radio to inspire enlightened living. You're listening now to the Honest to God series with Anne Gail Rose and Ahanu.